like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, contains God's design for marriage. This is really the high watermark in New Testament teaching concerning the relationship between husbands and wives. Only two verses are directed to wives. It simply says that wives are to be subject to their husbands, verse 22. And it says that they are to respect them in verse 33. That is, respect their God-given place of authority. The rest of the passage is directed to husbands. So Paul says wives are to be subject to their husbands, and then he spends the rest of the passage describing what kind of husband they're to be subject to. Now the role of the husband is given to us in verse 23. The husband is the head of the wife. And men, that brings with it four responsibilities. There are four primary things that you as head are to be doing for your wife. And we began to look at those last time. The first is leading. This thought is inherent in the word head. The head leads. Benjamin Hooks said, He who thinks he leads and turns around to find no one following is only taking a walk. There are a large number of husbands today who are just taking a walk. And that's often the case because they have the wrong concept of leadership. Leadership is not a privilege that grants us the right to elevate ourselves to the top. Leadership is a responsibility that calls us to stoop to the bottom. Arnold Glasgow said, A true measure of a man is not the number of servants he has, but the number of people he serves. And the primary person that you are to serve is your wife. The measure of a leader is not the amount of time he spends sitting on his throne. The measure of a leader is the amount of time he spends kneeling with a basin and a towel. Because Jesus is our example in leading, according to verse 23. We are to lead like he led, and Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. He was the servant leader. And that's why he could say in Matthew 11, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Your responsibility as head is, first of all, leading by serving. Second responsibility is loving in verses 25 to 27. Verse 25 begins, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And we can pick out four characteristics of Christ's love in these three verses. Number one, it's active. And by that I mean it's active and not just an emotion. Christ didn't sit in heaven singing, Feelings, whoa, 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 feelings. First John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. Love is tangible. Love is just not emotional goose pimples. Love can be seen. Maybe you heard about the fellow who came home, and when he opened the door, his wife said, Have you noticed that we have new neighbors across the street? And he dropped his briefcase, and he sat down in his favorite chair, and he turned on the television, and he says, Yeah, I've noticed we have new neighbors. But have you noticed what they do every night? No, dear, I haven't noticed. 
She said, well, every night when he comes home, he gives her a big kiss, he hugs her, and he almost always brings her flowers or a special gift. And then she added, how come you don't ever do that? And he looked at her rather puzzled, and he said, honey, I can't do that. I hardly know the woman. Now, he missed the point, but you shouldn't. (laughs) Love is active. And that's why verse 25 is in the form of a command. You don't wait till you feel like it. You act out of obedience. And secondly, I say that love is active because it's not reactive. It doesn't simply react to the love of my spouse. It doesn't react to the lovableness of my spouse. It's not based on her worth. It's not dependent upon how much she deserves it. Because the Greek word that Paul chooses to use here is the word agape in verse 24. And that's God's love. The love that gives expecting nothing in return. The love that Christ showered upon us when we were totally undeserving. And so this command cannot be fully carried out unless you are in right relationship with the God who is love. You see, you can't arrive at chapter 5, verse 25 until you first make two other stops in the book of Ephesians. You first of all have to stop at chapter 2 and verse 8 where it says, for by grace you have been saved by faith. And secondly, you have to stop in chapter 5 and verse 18 where it says, be filled with the Spirit. And when you are saved and then spirit-filled, your life will show forth the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. You will not be able to show agape love until you are plugged into the source. We have a camcorder, and every time a special event comes up, we plug the battery in and we charge it up, and then we go out and we film the special event, and it never fails. About halfway through the special event, the battery light comes on and we run out of power. You see, that's the way it is with even the strongest of human loves. If that love is not reciprocated, it will eventually falter and fail. In Gone with the Wind, we have the classic picture of an intense, long-lasting, natural love finally ending. And that parting scene with Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara has sort of passed into American folklore. He's standing there at the door with complete and final indifference. And he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Now, we may not like his language, but we can't help understanding what he's saying. Even the strongest natural love has to end eventually if there's no response. But agape love is different. You see, agape love is plugged into an eternal power source, and it can go on operating even when other kinds of love fail. And not only that, but it's the kind of love that loves no matter what. Because its love is not based on what the other person is. It loves in spite of what the other person is. It's a love that can love even the unlovable because it just keeps on flowing. And so love is active. Secondly, love is sacrificial. The end of verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Some husbands give their wives everything but themselves. That's not love. Because love is sacrificial. 
1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is to be the expression that we have toward the family of God, and the primary place that that is to start is in relationship to our wife. We have an example of that in Genesis chapter 29, where we read that Jacob so loved Rachel that he worked 14 years together. That's the nature of love. Mel Gibson starred in the recent movie Braveheart, which is based on the historical figure William Wallace, who led an army of ragtag warriors against the tyrannical English. USA Today did an article about a group of women on the Internet known as Bravehearters. They gather one night a week on America Online to discuss their favorite film. You say, well, what's the attraction? Is it seeing Mel Gibson in a kilt? No. The attraction is the character of William Wallace. Sue Ritchie, who has seen Braveheart over 80 times, said this, Here's a man so committed to freedom that he gave up his life for his countrymen. These attributes are non-existent today. Are they non-existent? Husbands, your wives ought to see that kind of commitment in your relationship to her. You are to be laying down your life in practical ways for her every day. Love is sacrificial. Third thing we can say about love is that it's sanctifying. Verse 26. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Christ gave his life for a purpose, to sanctify us and to cleanse us. Christ was a purifying love. He was not content to simply condemn those that he loved. He went about cleansing those that he loved. And the moment you trusted Jesus Christ, you were purified from every sin you ever committed or ever will commit. And that's why Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And Jeremiah 31.34 says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Micah 7.19, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The moment you trusted Jesus Christ, Christ made you absolutely pure. In fact, He made you fit already for heaven. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that you have already become the righteousness of God in Christ. But that's who you are positionally. Practically speaking, there's still a process going on. And Jesus described that to Peter in John 13.10. He says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Our bath occurred at salvation. We were completely cleansed. But as we walk through this life, we get our feet dirty. And so we continually need to have our feet washed. And that's described in 1 John 1.9, where it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what the agent is that God uses to cleanse us? It's the Word. In John 15, 3, he said, You are already clean because of the Word which I have spoken to you. And in his prayer in John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. Now, why does Paul talk about cleansing in the context of a marriage relationship? 
Well, I think he's probably alluding to what happened in Greek culture, and that was that they had a bridal bath. Now, that's not to be confused with a bridal shower. The bride was taken down to the river, and she bathed there, and she was both ceremonially and practically cleansed. We are the bride of Christ, and we have been cleansed as well, only our cleansing is not ceremonial. Our cleansing is actual. Now, how does this relate to the husband? Well, the word sanctified means to set apart. By your wedding vows, you set your wife apart from every other woman. And by your wedding vows, you set her apart from her previous life. And by your present love, you are setting her apart as a woman who is special. And not only that, but because you love her, you want her to be pure. And so you will do everything in your strength to maintain her holiness, her virtue, her righteousness. You won't provoke her to anger because that's sin. You won't take her somewhere that will defile her because that's sin. See, you want her to be holy and sanctified and pure, and your love has that purpose in mind. Now, single girls, don't let a fellow say, I love you, and then destroy your virtue. Because that's not love. True love purifies. Because true love wants the very best for you, and the very best for you is that you are pure in the eyes of the Lord. Fourth thing about love, it's glorifying. Verse 27. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. We as the church are the bride of Christ, and on this earth sometimes we look a little tattered, a little spotted, a little wrinkled, but one day we are going to be seen for who we really are, a glorious church. We will have no spot, we will have no blemish, we will have no wrinkle. And I want you to notice something in verse 27. The bride is not making herself presentable. It's the bridegroom that labors to beautify her. Back in the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus was in the market for a queen, and so he sent out to have virgins brought in from all over his kingdom. And if you'll read there in Esther chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, before they were presented to the king, they went through the days of their beautification, which lasted a year. They were beautified six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics. You see, that is what Christ is doing for us. He is beautifying us. He is perfecting us. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.16 says we are being renewed day by day. He is getting ready to present us to himself in all our glory. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse, Dare I put it this way? The beauty specialist will have put his final touch to the church. The massaging will have been so perfect that there will not be a single wrinkle left. She will look young and in the bloom of youth with color in her cheeks and her skin perfect without any spots or wrinkles. And she will remain like that forever and ever. Jesus Christ, the church's head, is the church's bridegroom. And he does not crush the church, but rather he sacrificed himself for her 
in order that he might make her everything that he longs for her to be in all her glory. And husband, you are the head of your wife, but you are not to crush her, you are not to stifle her, but rather you are to give yourself for her in order that she might develop into all that she is to be before God, a glorious woman. Let me ask you something, husbands. Is your wife a glorious woman? If not, it's largely your responsibility. I remember hearing Bill McCartney, who's the previous coach of the Colorado Buffaloes at a luncheon down in Dallas. And he said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, one of the reasons that he stepped down as coach was he heard somebody speaking one time, and they said, if you want to know how you measure up as a man, if you want to know how you're doing as a man, just look into the eyes of your wife. And he said, I looked into the eyes of my wife, and I saw that she was empty and in many ways unfulfilled. And he said, that's one of the reasons that I stepped down as coach, to concentrate on the things that really mattered. And he said, I wanted to start by loving my wife. You see, your love for your wife is designed to draw out her glory, to make her a glorious woman, everything that God wants her to be. And you're to set the atmosphere. You're to set the environment by your love for her. Third responsibility for husbands is caring verses 28 to 30. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Imagine a human being whose self-interest is only from the neck up. Only thing that matters is the head. Whatever the head wants, the head gets. The head wants a shampoo, it gets it. The head wants a shave, it gets it. The head wants a $235 pair of sunglasses, it gets it. The head wants a head massage, it gets it. Pampers and primps the head. Meanwhile, the body's flabby from lack of exercise, smells to high heaven because it never gets a bath. There's cuts and sores and infections all over the body because they're never attended to. His fingernails are dirty, his toenails are uneven. See, that doesn't happen. In fact, in verse 29, Paul says, No one ever hated his own body. No healthy individual lives from the neck up. And yet the man who fails to love his wife is doing exactly that. Because, husband, you are the head, and she is the body. And it is your responsibility to care for her. Now, in these verses, Paul tells us why we're to care for her, He tells us how we're to care for her, and he tells us what we're to do to care for her. First of all, he tells us why we're to care for her, and he gives us two reasons. The first is the nature of marriage. If you slide down to verse 31, he says at the end of that verse that in marriage we become one flesh. Marriage is more than two people living in the house, same house and having the same last name. Marriage is two individuals becoming one flesh. And because of that, Paul says in verse 28 at the end, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Your wife is your body. Your wife is your flesh. So when you love your wife, you are loving yourself. That's quite a paradox, because in loving your wife, you are both to do so sacrificially and selfishly. You're to lay down your life for her on one hand, but on the other 
You're really loving yourself because that's who she is. Second reason is the nature of our relationship with Christ. We are not only Christ's church and Christ's family and Christ's bride, but as he tells us in verse 30, we are members of his body. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, Paul said, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are his present incarnation on this earth. We are connected to him in such a way that we are one with Christ. That's an exciting thing. Now, what does that mean in the context of this passage? Well, it means that Christ provides for us as he does for himself. And that's why Philippians 4.19 says, God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, he is the head, we are the body. And for Christ not to provide for us is for him not to provide for himself because we're part of him. And that's an exciting concept. So the reason you're to care for your wife is because you are linked with her in a union that is so intimate that there's no dividing point. She is you and you is she. She's in you, you're in her. The only other relationship like that is your relationship to Christ. You're in Christ, he's in you. That's why in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Where's the dividing line? There's none. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. And it's the same way in your marriage relationship with your wife. And so Paul says, when you love her, you are loving yourself. Now, how are we to care for her? He gives us two ways in these verses. The first is equally in verse 28. Notice what it says. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, that little word as acts as an equal sign. To love your own wife as your own body is to love her equally. Now, that doesn't mean to treat her like a man. It doesn't mean to buy her a fishing pole and a license to the duck club, unless that's what she wants. You are to be a student of your wife's needs because you are ministering to her. It also doesn't mean that you buy all those things for yourself and then you leave her at home to be bored stiff. You are to love her equally. Let me ask you something, husbands. Are you loving your wife equally? And then let me help you with the answer. To answer that question, you might start by comparing the car you drive to the one she drives. How about the time you have to yourself versus the time she has to herself? What hobbies is she able to pursue? How much money is budgeted for her personal use as compared to yours? How much time does she have with her friends compared to the time you have with your friends? What kind of language are your kids allowed to use with her? How are your in-laws permitted to treat her? What limits are put on the amount of stress she has to put up with? What preference is given to her tastes in music and art and films and sports and decorating and furniture and vacations and food and pets? You see, you're to treat her needs like your needs because her needs are your needs. You are one. And so the first way you are to treat your wife is equally. But then there's a second way that we can see in these verses, and that is constantly. If you notice in verse 29, there are the words used there, but nourishes and cherishes it 
Those words are in the present tense, and they convey an ongoing activity. Loving your wife is not a one-time event. It's not a once-in-a-while event. I don't know too many men who look in the mirror to shave and comb their hair and get everything ship-shape and then never come back for 40 years. But I do know men who think it's normal to express their love at the wedding and never mention it again for 40 years. See, your wife needs constant love and care. One night of celebration and affection, one note every year on your anniversary, one arrangement of flowers on her birthday is not going to cut it. When I go out to the store to buy an anniversary card, it's rather interesting because probably half the anniversary cards begin this way. Honey, I know I don't show it like I should. And I know I don't say it very often, but... Now, if you have to buy those cards... then start showing it often and start saying it all the time and quit buying those cars. So you are to love and care for your wife constantly. It's to be an ongoing activity, a daily commitment that you make. Now, what ways are we to care for her? Look at verse 29 again. It says we're to do for her what we do for our own bodies. We are to nourish and cherish her. The word nourish means to build up, to feed, to provide for. The word cherish means literally to give warmth to. And so it's a word that came to mean tender affection. And so just as we provide nourishment and comfort for our own physical body, we are to provide the same for our wife. Now that commitment seems to wane as the time goes by. As you get further and further from the honeymoon, it seems there's less and less nourishing and cherishing. Irma Bombeck wrote an article called The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. First year, sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with all the strep going around. I'm putting you into the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and rest. Now, I know the food's lousy, but I'll be bringing your food in from Rossini's. Don't worry, I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. Second year. Listen, darling, I don't, like to, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've called Doc Miller, and he's rushing right over here. Now, you go to bed like a good girl just for Papa. Third year. Maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something. Have we got any canned soup? Fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you've fed the kids and get the dishes done and the floor finished, you'd better lie down. Fifth year. Why don't you take a couple aspirins? Sixth year. For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? Seventh year. If you just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal. Sometimes that comes a little too painfully close to home. Husbands, you are to nourish and cherish your wife, which means you are to provide 
for her needs. Now, we got finished, and we ran out of time in the first service here. Now I'm early, so I've got a dilemma. But we're going to stop there because I have to be fair to those people. Uh, But that's all right because as I've studied men, you know, they say that men are very focused. And uh, that means men can't handle too many things on their plate at once. So we've given you a little bit today. Next week, we're going to come back. Now, I know I promised you two weeks for the husbands. It's going to be three. Okay, we gave the wife one. We'll give three to the men. That'll balance it out. But next week, we're going to talk in detail about just how you are to nourish and cherish your wife in very practical ways.